Greetings again to God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Last time we finished with Genesis 2.25, speaking about the marriage between Adam and Eve. This was symbolic of the coming wedding in the future. As we can see, the marriage in essence took place at the end of Friday and toward the beginning of the Sabbath, which is very symbolic also of the future, where God is coming down to this earth and is going to take the bride to himself. The marriage to Israel, the marriage to the people of God, is going to take place around that time. So probably there is something uh, that is linking, uh, obviously, these two things. And it's very interesting that at the Passover time in ancient Israel, God came down to deliver his people. And at Pentecost, he gave them the law. And at the same time, there was the marriage, the marriage covenant. And that could be also indicative of the future where... Possibly, as some speculated, that Christ may come back on Passover time, and if it falls uh, in the same pattern, uh, apparently Pentecost will be symbolizing again the marriage, a period of uh, seven weeks. And if you remember also, the engagement of the bride was also on Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit was given. Anyway, all these things are, seem to be linking themselves one to another. There is a time of preparation. In essence, you might say that for 6,000 years, Christ was preparing the bride. He was building that body of believers, the first fruits. In John 14, he mentioned to his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. Well, he already prepared places for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and so forth. And he continues the process, and apparently it's a process of 6,000 years. Now, Shortly after that, after the marriage of uh, Adam and Eve, we see an intruder. Somebody else enters into the picture, and that's Satan. He enters and defiles the loveness. He enters in the same manner into the body of Christ. He defiles it through his tears, false doctrines. He defiles the relationship. He defiles the intimacy between the people of God and their creator. And he creates a false trinity concept. And that's, in essence, probably what was the beginning of it. Well, now, instead of just God and man and the Father, which makes it the true Trinity there, now there comes somebody in between. And probably at that point, men could not have an access anymore to the Father. Though we don't have any, any scriptures that speak about an access before that, but I'm sure that they were given enough knowledge to understand more things that we may realize. Anyway, in this case, we find ourselves with Adam and Eve getting married. And in verse 25, let's finish that chapter. It says, of, uh, verse, verse 25 of chapter 2, And they were both naked, the men and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And it's a very interesting statement because it means an awful lot. In other words, as long as they had a pure relationship with God, their mind was pure and their body was pure in their own sight. There was no problem there. And the reality is that as it turned out to be in the relationship between man and his woman, man and wife, and also between man and his creator, the central core of marriage, the sexual intimacy and the relationship that is involving the body, the mind, the soul, the emotions, and the environment were a part of it. And so God used that analogy in terms of the marriage that he's going to have, and he condemned the sins of Israel in, ter in terms of idolatry, and he calls Israel whenever they went into other lovers, so to speak. He called it harlotry or whoredom. And so he used that sexuality to 
relate a spiritual understanding. And so in essence, when you see Satan entering into the Garden of Eden, this is the outcome, the defilement of the mind and the body and the emotions and the feelings that make possible for intimacy. And the reality is that after that, and since that time, this became the very core of much trouble on this earth between husbands and wives, between men and women, and it has to do an awful lot with the abuse that went into it. And so we see the end result in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, where after Satan entered into the picture and did his work on Adam and Eve, we read in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. What does it mean were opened? Were they were closed eyes before that? No, he's speaking spiritually. And they knew that they were naked. And what does that mean, they knew that they were naked? Didn't they know that before that? Well, obviously, this is an idiom for a reality, a new reality that entered into their mind. Until now, they were innocent. Until now, they did not know the difference between good and evil. Until now, they were pure. Until now, they were not ashamed to walk before God naked or before each other. Until now, they had no conscience, feelings about guilt, about shame, about negative feelings. Everything was pure and clean and innocent. And so the opening of the eyes was not to light, was not, was not to enlightenment, was not to truth, to knowledge and understanding, but it was to a shameful reality. And in essence, this is what you find out when people do something wrong and they realize that they've done something wrong. Their eyes are open to see what they've done and they feel guilty about it and they go into hiding. They don't feel comfortable. If somebody does something wrong against you and they know that they've done it and they know that you know about it, they try to avoid you in every way that they can. And that's basically what was happening here. No more was light, light, but now light become, became darkness to them and darkness became light to them. Good became evil and evil became good. And that's in essence what you read as God says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5 and verse 20. Woe unto them that call good evil and evil good and make light darkness and so forth. In other words, when people depart from God, when minds are polluted and confused and corrupted, that's the way they begin to see things. Everything is upside down. And so God has to turn things the other way around where they become right side up. And so their mind was not polluted. Their body was polluted in their own sight. Their environment was not polluted in their own sight. It could not even be under the sun, where there was plenty of light, they had to hide in the shade, in the dark. And that's in essence what happened to them. And God allowed it. God knew all about it. God allowed Satan into the picture. God is in absolute charge, as we read in the book of Job, chapter 1 and verse 1. Where Satan gets involved, he comes into the throne of God, as all the sons of God come. And God tells him about Job, and God allows him to go and create a temptation for Job. To see that with the punishment that will come upon him and through Satan, whether he's going to be loyal to God or not, God knew that he will be. So we can have an example there that God is always in charge. And when Satan enters into the picture or when trials come on us or when temptations come upon us or when the evil people come and encounter us, God is in charge of it. He's testing. He's proving loyalties. He's proving us to see whether we trust in him or not. He's testing us to see whether we shall do the right thing. 
And if we do something wrong in the process, he wants to know, are we going to repent? Are we going to acknowledge it? Or are we going to hide in the dark, in the shade, just like Adam and Eve did? And so God is always in charge. And as you read also in the parable of the tares, as Christ was saying, while men are asleep, the enemy comes and sows the tares. But you see, God is in absolute control there. He knows exactly what's happening. But there is a purpose for the tares, just like there is a purpose for Satan still being on his throne and doing his dirty job, so to speak. There is a purpose in all that. And so Adam now hides, and God comes to him, realizing in what state of mind he is. And he's saying to him, when Adam says, well, I, I heard your voice and I went into hiding. And you know, because I was ashamed that I was naked. And God asked him, who told you that you were naked? In other words, who brought that darkness into your mind? Who made you feel guilty? I did not do it. Truth doesn't do it. Light doesn't do it. But darkness does. And that's a process that begins from a very young age. When children begin to know the difference between right and wrong, that's the first time when they begin to feel guilty about it. And they feel in essence in that same way as Adam did, they feel ashamed. At a time when they are very young, they are not ashamed to walk naked or they are not ashamed to do all kinds of things, to be expressive. But when something enters into their mind that is not a wholesome thing, they feel ashamed. And so Adam and Eve basically feel the same way. But you see, they had a choice. They had a choice to repent and they did not. And they would not admit error and would not say, we are wrong. Not only that we have done something wrong, but uh, by allowing a certain state of mind that was contrary to the mind of God to enter into their minds, from now on, they were wrong. Their whole mentality, their way of thinking, their emotions, their feelings, their outlook on life, their philosophy, everything was wrong now because of that. And instead of admitting, we are wrong, we chose the wrong way, we decided to in essence, allow this wrong kind of a trinity, somebody else to come between us, to defile the intimacy that we had, the relationship that we had. They were not willing, for whatever reason, we don't know, but they were not willing to admit error, they blamed somebody else. And finally, as Eve said, the devil made me do it. Well, when people are in that state of mind, there is nothing you can do for them. And unfortunately, those who came after them followed in their footsteps. Many of them did anyway. Very few were willing to say, we are wrong, and turn away. Very few were willing to walk in the light. The majority chose to walk in darkness. And so, the Sabbath was a time where man comes before God to be illuminated, to know the difference between right and wrong, and to make the right choices. To take on the mind of God, where there is no shame, no guilt, no evil, nothing dark. Everything is pure and clean and innocent and wholesome and beautiful. Yet men did not choose to do it. And when we come on the Sabbath before God, that's in essence what we are doing. We're having an intimate, clean, pure relationship with God based on the teachings that He gives us. And those who reject that Sabbath, that's in essence what they are saying. We want to walk in darkness. We feel ashamed and so we go into hiding. And we do not want to come before you and appear before you and dance before you and rejoice before you and absorb of your mind, of your nature, of your character and learn of your laws, of your ways. And when people feel guilty, 
when there is darkness inside, they do not want to appear before God, and of course they do not want to admit that this is the problem. And so God could not help them. And the simple reason why he could not help them, because they were not willing to ask for forgiveness, to admit error. As we read in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 6, speaking about spiritual sins and iniquities of people who had the Spirit and allowed themselves, just like Adam and Eve, only spiritually, to depart from God. It says that it is impossible for those who have tasted, like Adam and Eve did, of the presence of God, of the truth of God, of the light of God, if they are to fall away, it is impossible for them to be renewed unto repentance. And the reason why it is impossible because they would not allow the admission of error into their minds. They would not say, we are wrong. They would not come back to God. They would not allow the Holy Spirit to lead them back to truth and light and to repentance. They would not allow the gift of repentance to enter into them and produce good fruits. As David said, to the prophet Nathan, as long as soon as he was aware of the fact that he was the guilty one, he immediately said, I have sinned. He did not make any excuses at that time, as horrible as the wickedness that he committed was. He was a man according to God's own heart because he did not make excuses when he realized that he was wrong. He immediately repented. And that's what Adam and Eve should have done. And things would have been otherwise for them. And that's what any one of us should do when we find out that we are wrong, that we have done something wrong. And we all oftentimes do things wrong because we are wrong. There is something in us that is not right. And that's what Jeremiah, later on, would say. That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, and he did not use the word wicked, that's a poor translation, and desperately seek. It's a matter of sickness of the heart. And that's why Christ called himself the great physician. He said, I did not come to heal those who are well, those who are righteous, those who are good, but the sick. And we have to admit that there is something sick about us. And that's the reason why we do all kinds of things that we should not do. And so when we come to that realization, we repent. And so God was not able to have any more fellowship with Adam and Eve. Because they have allowed another mind to intrude into their minds. God is not allowing and would not tolerate a trinity where somebody comes between him and men, between him and his bride, between him and his people. And yet, humanity had done that. And all of humanity was cut off with few exceptions. And for 6,000 years, man has rejected the tree of life, the pure relationship with God, the pure sex relationship, or the sexual relationship, pure marriage, I'm talking about the spiritual concept, but even in the, in the physical reality of sexuality, look what happened in the past 6,000 years. Much abuse, much suffering, much sorrow, much corruption, much pollution, much anguish and tears and pain and much divorce in so many ways because of this very thing, impurity, in terms of the sexual relationship that involves the totality of humanity, totality of the five of the senses, totality of everything that involves the mind of man, the emotions, the feelings, the thoughts, the dreams, the hopes. When that is defiled and polluted, it destroys, it corrupts, and it pollutes, and it defiles, and it throws everything into total darkness, into the black hole. And that's where men find themselves to this very day. And the pure marriage and the pure teachings were rejected, and the royal law was no longer that which men sought after. But they sought the wisdom of this world, that is, 
called sensual in the sense of the of the wrong connotation of it, the guilt that is in it, the darkness that is in it. And it is devilish because of that, because this is the source of it. And so God reserved to himself from that point on few, only few, not many. And they became a part of the bride. And these are the ones that they are constantly being built. And these are the first fruit. And in the past 2,000 years, the process continued. It's only the first fruits that are being picked up now. One here, one there. Individuals. Among Israel and among the nations. God is not calling the nations now. Neither Israel nor the other nations. And so in Ephesians 5 and 25, we read about, uh, actually 22 to 23, we read about the mystery, the mystery of Christ, and that is the marriage that Christ is going to have with his people, where he's going to cleanse and purge and purify his bride, so it would be, it would be without spots, without blemishes. And the only way you know spots and blemishes is by the law. Only the law can define what is a spot and a blemish. When Christ offered himself as a lamb without spots and blemishes, that means without iniquity, without darkness, without sin, without transgression, without disobedience to any one little law or big law that God gave, part of the royal law, that defiles a relationship, that defiles the purity of the intimacy that man is to have with God. And so if we are to be a part of this group or bride, we must allow Christ and his teachings. We must allow the teachings of God. We must allow the teachings that we receive on the Sabbath. We must seek them, hunger for them, yearn for them, and thirst for them. And if we don't, we can go to Sabbath and keep the Sabbath, so to speak, and go over there and just sit and uh, sit on a chair and just pass the time of two hours and then go home. And nothing happens. Now we have to come hung in a state of hunger and thirst, desiring the mind of God, the teachings, the knowledge, the understanding, that we may have a pure relationship. And because many do not, we do not have this kind of relationship that we should. And we need to desire that so we can remove all, every spot and every blemish, and we must do it now. It's not the future, it's now. And all the spots and blemishes are defined by the law, by the Torah. That's why Christ said, think now that I came to destroy the law, the Torah, or the prophets. Because it's through them, through the knowledge that was given there, that we have a pure relationship, that we know how to remove the spots and the blemishes. And we do not fall into the same uh, condition that Adam and Eve did, with the rejected knowledge and teachings and everything else that made it possible for them to become one with God. And so Sabbath is a good time to prove it. Sabbath is our sign. Sabbath is the day where God sanctified for that pure relationship. Sort of a date, a romantic date between him and his bride. To come together and integrate emotionally and in every other way. And so God would not fellowship with dirt. He does not fellowship with whores or harlots or virgins without oil. Or those who have no garments of righteousness, spiritually speaking. And so in Israel, his wife, his bride committed all kinds of sins and transgressions, which means it hit upon itself a lot of spots and blemishes that defiled the relationship. God says, I'm not going to worship with harlots. He said, you went into harlotry. You went into whoredoms. And you produced children of whoredom because you taught them the same lies and deceptions. They have allowed the Trinity, so to speak, into their lives from the beginning by allowing another spirit. And God would not fellowship with dirt. So we must cleanse ourselves, and that's basically what Peter says. Cleanse yourself, you double-minded people. 
Wash your garments. Be pure when we appear before God. And the Sabbath is a wonderful time to learn all these things because all these ingredients were taught on the Sabbath day. And so the sexual union with all of its physical, spiritual, emotional components is a counterpart of the act of worship between men and God. And sexually impure minds can't have a, spiritually, a spiritual relationship with God because he chose marriage, he chose sexuality, he uses those terminologies all the time as a form of relationship with men and with the bride. And we shall see it later on in, when we get to Ezekiel. The story continues where Sinai later on was the reality of the marriage. God called Israel out of Egypt. They were into harlotry in Egypt. They worshipped other idols. They had other gods and therefore the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, no more messing around. You have to be pure and loyal and faithful to me and have a pure relationship with me. So we don't repeat the story of Adam and Eve. Well, obviously Israel, unfortunately, followed quickly in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. While they were in the presence of God, they had the golden calf. They already introduced the Trinity there again. Another spirit, another attitude, another God between them and God. And so read in Exodus 16:29, even before they came to Sinai, where God gave them uh, the Sabbath as a sign, and he told them. And the sign basically tells the whole world, Israel is my wife. Don't mess around in this marriage, in this relationship. And in Exodus 20, in the law that he gave to Israel, that's why we find the commandment of the Sabbath right there in that marriage covenant. The fourth commandment in the relationship between man and God. He did not include it in the royal law of love your neighbor as yourself. He included it in the law that says, love your God with all of your heart and mind and soul. And the Sabbath is right there. And so it is a reality that we all must be aware of and understand and have a greater understanding of what the Sabbath and have a greater reverence and respect for it because many have lost that. Many think that Sabbath is just a place, a time to go and uh, do your duty, so to speak, for two, three hours and then say goodbye and go home and that's it. And they go do your own thing. That's not the purpose of the Sabbath. No more than when you have a date with somebody you really love for whom you are willing to do everything you don't go over there and say, well, let's spend a couple of hours and I want to get away from it and go do my own thing. We just don't think that way. And the Sabbath should not be treated in that manner. And that's why as we read in Isaiah, he says, if you honor that day, if you make it a day of delight, if you sanctify it, remembering that it is my holy day, if you treat it with reverence from the beginning, Friday to, from sunset on Friday to the end of the, of the day, if you treat it in such a manner as the most important thing in your life during the week, that day, then you're going to delight yourself in the Lord and I'm going to pour your blessings upon you. But Israel, unfortunately, with all the knowledge and understanding of the covenants that were given to them, they did not feel that way. They always went astray. And so we read in Ezekiel where God is sort of reminiscing on this reality and is bringing it to the attention of his people and the way in which they behaved. And the way he felt about it. And how painful it was for him. And so we go to Ezekiel in chapter 16. And we read about this story. Let's, let's read it in the chapter. The words are very interesting. I don't have to insert my words there. Let God speak for himself and express his feelings. In chapter 16, verse 1, we read, Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Now he's using Jerusalem symbolically. 
uh, the core of the nation, Israel, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. In other words, he's talking about the spiritual condition of Israel when he took them out of Egypt. They were a mess. They were full of sins and iniquities, full of deceptions, idol worship, and who knows what kind of warped attitudes and philosophies and ideas that they had. And so I brought them into that condition, out of that condition, and that's, that was a part of the deliverance. In verse 5 he says, No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. So there was a time when the nation was born. And in the future, that's something also for the future. There would be a time where a new nation will be born. And that nation again will enter into a marriage covenant. In verse 6 it says, And when I passed by, by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, in your own sins and iniquity, in your own darkness, in your confusion, I said to you in your blood, leave. Yes, I said to you in your blood, leave. In other words, I offered you life. I offered you my life, my truth, my light, myself. And who on this earth ever acts like that but God? And I made you, verse 7, I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew. In other words, I fed you spiritual truth. And you matured and became very beautiful. And then he's using physical analogies with sexual connotations. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew. And he's speaking about, pubic, about uh, puberty hair, not just the hair on the head, because he's uh, linking it to the sexual growth. But you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. In other words, you reached maturity. And maturity is the time when a woman can be married and have a sexual relationship. And that's exactly what he says uh, about it. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Speaking about the sexual relationship. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. That is a marriage covenant. And you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Speaking about repentance. Washing by the word. Yes, I thoroughly washed, your, washed off your blood. And I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. You see the same terminology later on about Christ, how he's washing his bride, removing every spot and blemish with his own blood, purifying her to make her glorious and beautiful, a bride to himself. And that's basically the same process that we see here also. And he says, I adorn you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, and chain on your neck, and I put a jewel on your nose, earrings in your ears, and so forth. He's going on with the, with the description. Just like in the Garden of Eden, he created a garden. He made it so glorious and beautiful. He placed Adam and Eve there. He gave them every wonderful, beautiful thing to have a majestic, beautiful, wholesome, clean, pure relationship. And on the Sabbath day, he was teaching them all those things that will keep their minds pure, that will make it possible for them to have an intimate relationship with him. And so verse 14, it says, Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty. 
as Moses said, all the nations of the earth will come and see the laws and the statutes and the judgments that you have and will say, what a wise nation it is. And that was the beauty that he's talking about. For it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But, and that was the difference between what he did for them and the way they reacted. Their gratitude, so to speak, quote-unquote, gratitude. But you trusted in your own beauty. Played the harlot, you see the sexual connotation, because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. And that was the nature of the wife of God, unfortunately. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. And so God is talking about the fact that he's going to take away from Israel everything that he gave them. To punish Israel, to bring her to the point where she would say, yes, I am wrong. And when Israel is ready to, do, to say that, as we see that in the prophets, then God said, later on, even in this chapter, that he's going to take her back, in spite of all the sins and iniquities that she has committed. And so it is very important to understand that the Sabbath is more than just a day. It is the core of the marriage. It is a time of intimacy. It is a time when the bride becomes purified, that learns the time where the bride learns about the spots and the blemishes to totally remove them, that she can come and have a union, a total union with the Creator, with the Maker, with the God, with her husband. And that's why it was very important that all of Israel consider the Sabbath far above their chief joy, so to speak, far above anything else because of the importance that God placed on it and the purpose for it. Now, Jewish rabbis looking at the Sabbath and realizing what the Sabbath meant, really understood it, they said, we are not the ones who kept the Sabbath throughout all this darkness and confusion and wandering. It was the Sabbath which kept us. But the knowledge and understanding that the Jew gained when he went to the synagogue and he heard the law and the prophets, and received light in that sense in the world of darkness, where there was ignorance all around, dark ages. He was kept, now that he was kept in a perfect way, but at least there was constantly light on the Sabbath, and that kept the Jew together. That is, the ones that kept the Sabbath, because many did not, like all the other nations. And so it is important to understand that the Sabbath and the bride and the teachings and the intimacy and the oneness of God and man, they're all linked together. And that's why, as we read in Genesis 2, he begins with the creation being finished, all put together, and then the Sabbath comes in between, and then at the end he ends up also with the creation, where the totality of it comes into fruition. And the ultimate is when the Father becomes one with all, where there is no sin, no iniquity, no darkness, not even grave or death. And so the Sabbath day became an extremely important item, so to speak, or element, or central reality between God and between his wife, his bride, Israel. And so it is also in the future. And that's why Christ called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a very deep and profound meaning. And so in Exodus chapter 31, as the story goes on, we read about the covenant that God gave Israel, the covenant of the Sabbath, in which he tells them, that you are going to keep the Sabbath because it's going to be a sign between me and you. This is what determines, this is what shows the whole world that we are married. You remove the sign of marriage and what do you have left? 
and humanity, unfortunately, that is, those individuals that have come to the knowledge of the Sabbath did not always keep it, did not always keep the sign. When they got tired of it, they just threw it away, and in that sense, they went into darkness. And many of them do not realize that they are in darkness when they reject the Sabbath. Now, later on, the tabernacle was being built in the wilderness. And the tabernacle was, in essence, the place, sort of a replacement for the Garden of Eden in the wilderness. A place that was like a love nest for the marriage relationship between man and God. This is where Israel came on a weekly basis on the Sabbath and the holidays also, but especially on the Sabbath every week, to have an intimate relationship with God, to bring offerings, to bring songs, to rejoice before God, to learn of the teachings of God, to remove spots and blemishes. And that's how the relationship continued. And when they did not come before the tabernacle, and that's the reason also, when they came to the tabernacle of God, God demanded that they are pure. If there was any blemish in them, if there was any iniquity, if there was any uncleanness, they were not allowed to come into his presence. Because God does not tolerate iniquity and darkness or not having garments of righteousness when we appear before him. And so the tabernacle became sort of the Garden of Eden, a place for the intimate relationship to take place, so to speak, to be experienced on a weekly basis. And Israel had quite a bit of an understanding in that direction, but now and then they would lose it when the Sabbath was not too much of an important thing for them anymore. And later on after that we read about the temple, which was a much more glorious setting, a bigger one. More people were able to come inside in the tabernacle, they could not, only the priests and the Levites. But now into the temple, God wanted them to come in, and as they came before him, they came with dancing, they came with singing, they even ate before him. They were commanded to come and eat before him when they offered sacrifices of praise and of peace and peace offerings. And love offerings, so to speak. It was a place of worship. It, it was a place, you might say, of love making. This is what they were being taught on the Sabbath. To come and love God. And make love to God. And be loved by God. And be taught by God. And be chastened by God now and then because that's a part of love. In other words, how are they going to know about spots and blemishes unless they are being chastened or exhorted or rebuked? And that is made known to them, so they can have a pure relationship, an intimate relationship. And so the elements that were given in the temple, or in the tabernacle, or in the Garden of Eden, were elements of teaching, of singing, of music, of dance, of food, of incense. And that was a part of the relationship between the bride and the husband. And so we read about many of those ingredients in Exodus. We read about it in Leviticus. In essence, you might tell Leviticus in the book of the arts of love. Because it tells you about all those things that people had to do. Even the sacrifices for sin offerings were part of the arts of love because when there is iniquity, when there is an offense in a relationship, love means that you are going to have to acknowledge the wrong if you are going to have an intimate relationship. And so they had to get rid of that. And that's the purpose for the sin offering. They had to come and be pure before God without spots, without blemishes. And that was very important for Israel to know in detail, and so God gave them the instructions in detail. A lot of people read that book and think that's a very boring book because they don't understand the meaning behind it, the purpose of it. It was through these instructions in this book that God is, was making his wife without spots and without blemishes. And it's all spiritual, it's not just physical things, it's not just physical rituals. All of them were spiritual, as Paul would later on call 
those teachings in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says that all of our fathers went through the Red Sea. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud. They all ate of that spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink and followed the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. All those things were spiritual. Though they were physical things that you do, but the purpose of it was spiritual. And therefore, the Word of God from the beginning until the end, even if it is a physical act, it has a spiritual connotation and should never be taken as if it is a boring part of the Bible. It's not. When you understand it, it is extremely rich and has all the ingredients that make pure intimacy, glorious intimacy, passionate intimacy, clean relationship possible. And so it's very important to look at it from that point of view. And again, on the Sabbath day, those teachings were being given on a yearly basis in Israel. So Israel can have a heightened awareness of what the marriage relationship is all about. So they can have it also translated into their own physical relationships. And so train their children in that way from the beginning of life. And teach them all those things that they too may all be geared toward that relationship of the ultimate relationship with their Creator. And so the Apostle Paul admonished the bride to sing and to make melodies in their heart to the Lord. And many other writers say the same thing as prophets. David composed an awful lot of songs, was inspired by God to compose a lot of songs for that purpose, to make, that possi- to make it possible for that intimate relationship to grow and mature and come to perfect uh, reality. And even Jesus Christ later on says, though it is written in the Psalms, in the midst of the church I will sing, or in the midst of the congregation, I will sing praises to you. Because all the things are elements of the marriage. And in the physical marriage, the same elements should be also present. Husbands and wives should share into each other, sing to each other. Families actually should be singing together, the whole family together, because all those things bind them, unite them, make them one. And those things are pure and wholesome and clean. That's assuming that the songs that are being sung in the words are also wholesome and clean and pure. In Proverbs 7, we have a very good example, in essence a very bad example, but a very good example of the elements of marriage, but unfortunately they were being abused. In other words, a woman that knew the elements of marriage, all the aspects of it, but were using it for the wrong purpose. Let's go to the book of uh, Proverbs in chapter 7 and read about this uh, story that King Solomon, in essence, is imparting to his son and to all those who are reading it. Because King Solomon had an awful lot of wisdom, had an awful lot of experience, and had an awful lot of mistakes that he made. And he had a lot of women, and he had a lot of experience in that sense of learning how things should not be, what things men should not do in his relationship with his wife, in his relationship with his fellow men. Because though he had accomplished a lot, much of his accomplishments had to do also with doing the wrong things. And so in chapter 7 we read, as I said, about a person, a woman, typifying in that sense Israel, as we read in Ezekiel 16, who had taken all the glorious, beautiful things, the arts of love, and yet, instead of doing it with God, with her maker, with her husband, she did it with the wrong person. 
And so we read in chapter 7 of the Proverbs, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. In other words, you don't keep the commandments, you're going to be dead. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet, tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. That they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. You see what this immoral woman is doing, and applied spiritually in terms of what Israel did, and in terms of what the bride of Christ can do when it allows herself to tangle with other doctrines, to tangle with other spirits, when it allows itself to be injected with darkness and impurities, oftentimes because of the grievous wolves that come from within and from without. And that's why you read all those letters to the churches. They knew who the bridegroom was, and yet they found themselves oftentimes going astray. And Christ had to rebuke them and bring them back towards their spots and blemishes. And so we read in verse 6, the mode of operation of this woman. And think about it in a spiritual way, the way people act, and the way Israel did, and the way the bride might, if it's not careful. For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice, and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youth a young man, devoid of understanding. And people who come on the Sabbath to learn of the ways of God should not be in that condition. And there is no excuse for people of God to be week after week and month after month and year after year in the body of Christ and to be devoid of understanding. They must learn constantly. They must hunger and thirst so they would not fall into that temptation and would not fall astray. Because the reality is for the past 2,000 years the majority fell astray and only the few remained faithful until the end. And so passing along the street near her corner and he took the path to her house instead of resisting and fleeing temptation, he went in that direction. In the twilight, in the evening, verse 9, in the black and dark night. It's not during the day, in the light, under the sun, like Adam and Eve, remember? Once they have done something wrong, now they were hiding. Now they were doing their works in the dark, because they were ashamed. And so this is what is happening in the world also. Works of darkness are in the dark. And there a, a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. In other words, attired very beautifully to seduce, to attract, to deceive, to lead astray. And that's how, remember, the description of what God calls in Revelation 17 and other places the great whore. But even John, as he looked at her, he, was, he marveled because she is attired with great, beautiful ornaments, jewelry, scarlet, all the beautiful things to attract people. And that's in essence what this woman is all about. And so she met him. And she, in verse, uh, verse 10, And their woman met him with the, with the attire of a harlot and crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. Well, she should have been taking care of the long nest and making it a beautiful place for a relationship with her husband. Verse 12, At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. And that's an attractive thing for a man. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. 
What does that mean? When you think about the terminology of the relationship between God and man, when the bride of God comes before his temple or his tabernacle previously, she's supposed to bring a peace offering. And she brings her vows. And she brings a love offering. And that's in essence what she's saying here. I brought those things to attract you, to draw you to me. And so, in verse 15, So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. Not seek the face of her husband, as she should have done, but to seek the face of the wrong one. And I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. You see, all the elements of marriage, all the elements of intimacy, all the elements of the marriage between God and man, well, God demanded all those items and elements to be introduced into the tabernacle, introduced into the temple. And spiritually speaking, those are the elements that are qualities and traits. And the things that we do that are pleasing in the sight of God, that are sweet-smelling incense to Him, and not a stench in His nostril. And so she says, that's what I've done. Verse 17, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. I mean, total saturation, total intimacy, total oneness, because all the elements there. We've got the Garden of Eden here before us. But you see, all these things is done with the wrong person, and that's what Israel had done, and that's what the Bride of Christ oftentimes had done, and that's what many in the Bride of Christ have done, and therefore went astray and fell by the wayside. And we are today eyewitnesses, seeing some of those that have done it in our midst and have rejected the Sabbath. And have rejected many of the teachings of God. And are basically in this state of mind of, of Proverbs chapter 7 woman. And so she says, 19, for my husband is not at home. You know, my Lord delays his coming. So let me eat and drink and, and be merry and do all those things. So she says, for my husband is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. And will come home on the appointed day. In other words, it's going to be a long time before he comes. So let's not worry and have fun. No loyalty, defilement of the relationship, pollution, iniquity, all set in. Because the teachings that supposedly should have been given on the Sabbath to keep this woman away from such things were rejected. We shall continue with this subject next time. And until then, greetings again. This is Mordecai Joseph. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www. Dot BibleStudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.